This morning we're going to consider the pride of life, the pride of life, looking at Esther, the first chapter, verses 1 through to verse 22. We're starting a new series, or to be more precise, we're revisiting an old series, I've forgotten when we looked at it, um, 2012 or something like that, so... It's as good as new. Anything beyond a week ago, it's as good as new for me. And the book of Esther is one of just two books in the 66 books of the Bible that are named after a woman. Can anyone guess what the other book of the Bible is that is named after a woman? Yeah? Ruth. Well done. It's Ruth. In the book of Ruth... Ruth was a Gentile who married a Jew. In fact, she has the great honour of being named in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see that in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5. In this book, the book of Esther, Esther is a Jewess who married a Gentile king, Ahasuerus of the Medo-Persian Empire. What is perhaps the most unusual feature of the book of Esther is the fact that it is one of just two books in the Bible where God is not mentioned at all, not even once. That's strange, isn't it, in the Bible? To have a book where God is not even mentioned. Another question for you. What is the other book in the Bible where you will not find God mentioned even once. Yeah, Song of Solomon. You might well wonder why on earth God allowed the book of Esther to be included in the Bible. You'll see why as the narrative unfolds. But I'll tell you right now, at the very outset of this series, that you ought to be able to see the hand of God reaching into the affairs of men and women throughout this book as he cares for the Jews of old from whom the Son of God is a descendant according to his humanity. Let's remember that. Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. But he was born of a virgin and he comes from the, um, the line of David the tribe of Judah, one of the tribes of Israel. I shall now give you a fairly brief summary of the book of Esther. The setting is the Medo-Persian Empire, which succeeded the Babylonian Empire. A plot was hatched by a man called Haman. He was the prime minister of the Medes and the Persians, and the plot that was hatched by Haman was to kill all the Jews. Again, let me remind you, Jesus, according to his humanity, was born a Jew. And Haman, the prime minister, he wanted to kill the Jews. Even before that plot was conceived, the providence of God can be seen to have been at work preventing the destruction of the Jewish nation, which was spread out across the 127 provinces of the empire. Needless to say that Haman's wicked scheme failed in spectacular style 
and in circumstances that compel or should compel the reader to acknowledge divine intervention rather than Haman being extremely unlucky. As I've said, God is not mentioned, not even once. So you'll have to decide for yourself whether things just happen to pan out as they did or rather God overruled. As a Christian, there's been various occasions where I've been trying to explain something to someone about the providence of God and I've they've been looking at me with their deadpan expression and I can tell they're just not buying into it at all. I've got various testimonies of how God has intervened in my life, various things that have happened to me as a Christian and when I think about it, even before I became a Christian, I won't go into all these things now, but things that happened to me long before Christian where basically I should have died. And still, there was that time in 1994 when I became a Christian. So I can I can see God's intervention, his providential care of me throughout my life, essentially. People can believe me when I say that God arranged those various outcomes uh, in my life, or else they can put it down to the way the cookie crumbles. It's up to them. I can't make anyone believe. I trust that all of you Christians have a testimony of God intervening in your life. You most certainly do have at least one testimony if you're a Christian. You have a testimony of God redeeming your life from destruction, forgiving you all your sins through the sinless life, the sacrificial death, and the triumphal resurrection of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved you and who gave himself for you at Calvary's cross. People can believe you or not, as the case may be, but that is your testimony, dear Christian, and praise God for it. There's nothing and no one able to frustrate God's purposes. As it is written in Proverbs chapter 19, And verse 21, there are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. And we see that time and again, the devices in men's wicked hearts, wicked men who took the Lord Jesus Christ, who nailed him to a cross, lifted him up to die, they crucified him. And all that was done according to the foreknowledge and the predeterminate counsel of God and the counsel of the Lord prevailed. And what we're going to see, I don't want to spoil it for you, we won't be looking at it tonight, but what we will see is Queen Vashti. She will be toppled in today's study, if you like, and she will then make way for Esther, whom this book is uh, titled after, Esther, who becomes the new queen of the Medo-Persian Empire. And you'll see, you'll begin to see God's hand at work in the affairs of that empire and his overruling, his providential care of the Jewish people. 
As William Cowper rightly said in his hymn, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm deep in unfathomable minds of never never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. And thank God for that, that he works his sovereign will. Because, you know, you think this world is in a mess. It would be a lot worse if God was not working out his purpose. And if it wasn't for the fact that day by day, people are being added to the church, such as should be saved. And this world will continue until the very last person whose name is written in heaven is brought to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's eternal decree will not fail. So much so that when Jesus comes again, he will raise up every single person who has ever trusted in him. Every single person whose name is written in heaven. We can be sure that God's will will prevail. Despite the fact that the devil is the god of this world, the prince of this world, and that unregenerate people, it doesn't matter how nice they appear to be, even sweet old grannies, anyone in this world, and we're talking about the vast majority of people in this world, anyone who is not regenerate does the lusts of his or her father, the devil. This is the world we live in. But still, we can rejoice that God is in control. That concludes my intro. For the remainder of our time, we shall simply look at something of the life of Ahasuerus, the king of the Medo-Persians, as we consider the pride of sinful man. Looking again at chapter 1, I'll read for you chapter Uh, Verses rather, verses 1 through to 9. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia over a hundred and seven and twenty provinces, that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom which was in Shushan, the palace In the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants. The power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. What a grand affair that would have been. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honour of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and fourscore days. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan, the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green and blue, hangings fastened fastened with cords of fine linen and purple, to silver rings and pillars of marble, The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white 
and black marble. And they gave them drinking vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse, one from another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel, for so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. In other words, the the wine just kept on flowing. They ran out of wine on the, the, the wedding feast that the Lord Jesus Christ attended and he was, Jesus was, uh, Jesus produced wine from nothing or just from water, water, wine from water. But here we see that the wine just kept on flowing. You can be sure it was good wine as well. Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, made a feast in which, according to verse 4, he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honour of his excellent majesty. How long did that feast last? A day? Two days? Maybe a week? Not at all. According to verse 4, it lasted 180 days. That's a long time. It's half a year. Can you imagine that? A feast for half a year. One might reasonably and rightly assume that Ahasuerus and his empire were enjoying a prolonged period of peace and prosperity for him to be able to parade his opulence and all his possessions for such a length of time. According to verse 5, that half a year long feast for the king's princes and his servants was followed by another feast, a seven day, <coughs> seven day party for the citizens of Shushan. That also was compliments of the king. Even his wife, Queen Vashti, made a feast for the women in the royal house according to verse 9. When all that partying was taking place, do you imagine that any time at all, King Ahasuerus or his queen gave thanks to God for all the material wealth that they had, for the palace, the pillars of marble, the beds of gold, the silver, and so on. When the king raised his vessel of gold to drink the royal wine, Do you imagine that he thought to propose a toast to his majesty, King Jesus, who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? As has already been said, God is not mentioned even once in this book. Not once do we read of that pagan king bowing his heart before the sovereign of all things, almighty God. How different that is to King David of Israel, who about 500 years earlier said, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honour come of thee, 
and thou reignest over all. And in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. King David knew something about giving God the glory, didn't he? Unlike King Ahasuerus, it would seem. Even Her Majesty the Queen, in one of her Christmas messages, which was broadcast across the world, acknowledged God when she said, History teaches that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, a saviour with power to forgive. Also, the Queen referred to the saviour as Christ our Lord. We don't see any of that with King Ahasuerus. Let's have a look at verses 10 through to 12. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bisla, Habona, Bigtha, and Abagatha, Zitha, and Kakas, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. On the last day of the feast that the king had laid on for the people of Shushan, having already spent half a year showing the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honour of his excellent majesty, he, having had too much wine to drink, commanded his chamberlains to bring in Queen Vashti so that he could show off her beauty. The name Vashti means beautiful, One might be inclined to think that the king thought to show off his beautiful wife as one of his many prized possessions, a showpiece, rather like the beds of gold and silver in verse 6. Queen Vashti refused to come at the commandment of her husband, the king. However, easy to say this in hindsight, but she would perhaps have done well to spare him from making a drunken fool of himself before his nobles and before the citizens of Shushan by coming to the feast or at the very least by making excuses for not coming instead of outrightly refusing as she did. At the end of the day, Ahasuerus was the king And without a doubt, it must have been most humiliating for him to have his chamberlains report back to him that the Queen refused to come. Consequently, his anger burned in him. Not saying that's right, but it doesn't surprise me either. We'll look at verses 13, 15, and then we'll move down to verse 19. Verse 13, then the king said to the wise men which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment, verse 15, 
What shall we do unto the Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she have not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. Verse 19. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it be not altered that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. And when the king's decree which he shall make shall be published throughout all the empire for it is great all the wives shall give to their husbands honour both to great and small. And the saying pleased the king and the princes and the king did according to the word of Memucan. For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the language of every people. The king sought counsel from his wise men, and they pointed out that once the disobedience of the queen became public knowledge, there would be rebellion amongst the ladies against their husbands throughout Persia and media. There'd be an uprising amongst the women. One of the wise men, Memucan, recommended that the king enact an unalterable law forbidding Vashti from coming before him ever again and that her royal estate be, give, be given to another who is better than she. According to the Bible commentator John Gill, that meant that Vashti would be entirely divorced, never to be received any more by the king, and her honour and dignity, her marks of royalty, her throne, her crown, her royal apparel given to another who was of a better disposition than her. All that because she refused to come at the king's commandment when he, when he wanted to show her beauty to the people. She lost the lot. Gill also suggested that for his own safety, for Memucan's own safety, he counselled the king to enact an unalterable law so that the king would not be uh, able to change his mind, leaving Queen Vashti free to rent her wrath upon Memucan. Sounds sensible, doesn't it? The king followed the advice of his wise men and he sent letters to all the provinces saying that every man, every man should bear rule in his own house. We come to a close and we can consider the rights and wrongs of how the king treated his queen and also we can consider her refusal to come to him. As I've already uh, couldn't resist telling you at the beginning, her departure paved the way for Esther to become queen, queen and we can see God's hand in all of that. But even so, looking at chapter 1 there, we'll consider the rights and the wrongs of what the king did and indeed what the queen did. It is clearly taught 
in the Bible that women should honour their husbands and they should submit to them. Very unpopular in this day and age, even amongst Christian, Christian circles. That as may be, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, it is written, Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. That's the word of God. What does that mean? Or rather, what it does not mean is that husbands are to lord it over their wives. Or that wives are to be in subjugation, not subjection, but subjugation to their husbands like prisoners of war. Or as if, as if they were in some way inferior. Submission of Christian wives to their husbands as unto the Lord is part of a submission unto God's will. And is therefore honouring to God. When a, when a wife submits to her husband, she is doing that which is pleasing to God. That can't be a bad thing, can it? That's what it means, as unto the Lord. It doesn't mean that the husband is to lord it over his wife, but that she submits to her husband as unto the Lord, uh, according to his good pleasure, the Lord's good pleasure, according to his will. As for husbands, according to Ephesians 5 and verse 25, they are to love their wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Therefore, the love of a Christian, of Christian husbands for their wives ought to be a sacrificial love. And it ought to be such that their wives delight in being in submission to their husbands, who love them with that sacrificial love. It makes sense, doesn't it? Oh, it should make sense if, if you receive the word of God. Husbands love their wives and in turn their wives submit to their husbands. It's as simple as that and that is pleasing to God. We can also consider the pride of King Ahasuerus. What was seen in chapter 1 is a powerful and privileged man showing off the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honour of his excellent majesty. All of that pride is not of the Lord. It's, it's not of the Lord at all. Infinitely better is to have a broken and contrite heart as you acknowledge your sins before the throne of God's grace and you acknowledge your continuous need of the Saviour. That's for far more pleasing to God than showing off what you have, boasting about what you have done and all that stuff. Far better to focus upon God and upon his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Too many churches nowadays focus upon us instead of on God. And if we really want our people to be blessed, 
The focus should be on Jesus. As well as being a big show-off, we see that the king had a bad temper. We are told in verse 12 that he was very wroth and his anger burned in him. The main reasons for that were probably a wounded pride and also he consumed too much royal wine. We need to understand that God is very angry as well. He is very angry with unrepentant sinners. As it is written in John chapter 3 and verse 36, He that believeth on the Son have everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God is abideth on him. That's very clear. If you have not received Jesus as your saviour from sin, the wrath of God is upon you. Again, that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son into this world as a propitiation for sin to take away God's righteous anger. And upon the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, he drunk from the cup of God's wrath. And all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they no longer have the wrath of God abiding on them, but they have reconciliation with God, peace with God, by the blood of the cross of Christ. Peace with God. Do you know anything about that peace? If you're a Christian, you do. But if you're not, you know nothing about a peace that endures forever. A peace that passes all understanding. The wrath of God is upon you. You may not even know it now, but you will know it one day when Jesus comes again. And he says, depart from me, ye who are cursed into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's very, very serious, isn't it? That king there, showing off, he was made to look a fool when his wife didn't come, when he couldn't show off her beauty and he was burning with anger. Forget that. What you need to think about is the anger of God upon unrepentant sinners. I'm not trying to frighten anyone into heaven. I can't do that anyway. But it's a reality. And as long as you can understand that God is holy and he has a he has a righteous, holy anger, not just towards sin, but towards sinners. May it please God for each one of you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all your pride, your unrighteous anger and whatever other sin is going on in your life. And to God be the glory when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Saviour and live a born again life.
for him, following him. Amen.